Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see all of you. Uh, my name is Eric. If I have not had the chance to meet you yet, I am uh, on staff here. I'm a pastor in training. I do music a lot, and occasionally I get to teach with you guys. So excited to be here. If, you, uh, if we have not met, I would love to, to have a chance to do that. If you want to come say hello, uh, check in after this, that would be great. But go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, if you are not already there. Matthew chapter 21 is where we will be. So if you are just joining us uh, just recently in the, in the grand scheme of things, or, or maybe you just need a refresher, whatever it is, we have recently jumped back into the book of Matthew. So we have been uh, teaching all the way through, start to finish, jumping around a little bit so that things aligned with Christmas at one point. But we have been working through Matthew, <laughs> mostly start to finish, uh, for, the, for the better part, on and off for several years at this point, and we are getting close to the end. And by close, I mean sometime next calendar year, we will be wrapping it up, which is the closest we've ever been, which is great. Um, but we're at the point in this book where Jesus has, has arrived in Jerusalem and, and is in the last week of his life. That is where we are in the timeline. This is, this is the last time Jesus will enter Jerusalem, and this is the last week of his life before going to the cross. So last week, we spent some time talking about a pretty memorable, uh, in my opinion, a pretty memorable story in Jesus' life, uh, a memorable, memorable aspect of Jesus' life. Um, I, I think even people who are not necessarily super familiar with Scripture, with the stories of Scripture, or with all the different aspects of Jesus' life, people tend to know the rough details of what we talked about last week, right? Jesus went to the temple, and he was flipping tables and he was running people off, and he was, he was generally making a scene. That's kind of what he was doing. And, and Kent talked about some of the responses uh, that the religious leaders had. They, they weren't all that excited uh, about what he was doing and what he was saying. Uh, and that's really important context to remember for today. Because where we're jumping in in the story, I know that it's separated by weeks because of how we structure our gatherings, but this is the next day. Jesus is back in the same temple the next day. That's where we are with the same group of religious leaders. Um, so last week, he was, he was doing the, the table thing, and he was pointing out corruption in the temple. And, and that corruption, a lot of it originated with some of these leaders. And so he was driving out people who were involved in corruption, and he was, he was bringing in, and he was healing people, and he was welcoming people who normally were not welcome in the temple, people who were, who were generally excluded and so now he's back, like I said, the next day, and he is teaching in the temple. Uh, and actually, some of the other gospel accounts, I think this is really important, they point out 
that, that Jesus has actually been teaching in the temple with some regularity at this point in his time back in Jerusalem. I, I, I feel like sometimes we can read over that when we look in just Matthew's account. But I think it's really important because it helps us see just how tense the situation is. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think, I think Luke's account puts it really well in the, the same beginning of the same story that Luke tells. Uh, in chapter 19, he actually says this. He says, every day he was teaching in the temple. That's Jesus, was teaching in the temple. But the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him, yet they could not find any way to do it. So Jesus has been there multiple times. He's been there repeatedly, not just for the table flipping. He's been there. He's been teaching. He's been amassing a crowd of listeners. People are coming, and and the, the group is growing in number of the people who are listening to what he has to say, and the interest is growing in what he has to say. And the chief priests are getting more and more angry every day because they don't like any of what he's doing, and, and the tension is just is building. So remember, the day prior to this is when he finally got to the point where he's flipping tables and driving people out of the temple, and then we're picking up right after that in this, in this series of, of things that Jesus is doing in the temple. So let's jump in. Matthew 21, we're going to start in verse 23. It says, Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? So they're asking about these, they say these things. Whose authority are you doing these things? So the things that they're asking about include pretty much everything that Jesus has been doing in the temple, right? The teaching, the healing, the whip, the table flipping, all of it. Whose authority are you doing these things by? Uh, So they basically come to him and they, they demand that he explain himself, right? Tell us, like, what... Why, are you, why do you feel like you're allowed to do this? Uh, so, so think about this for a second. I, I think it's a pretty, an understandable response. So if you, can, you, can you recall a time when you, were, when you were younger, when you were a kid, you were, you were playing around, having a good time, and either a, a sibling or a peer, somebody came over and they interrupted what you were doing, right? And they start trying to just boss you around. They start telling you what to do, what not to do. They're just handing out unsolicited instructions to everyone, right? Odds are pretty good that you would have a a similar response to the religious leaders right here, right? Jesus is coming in. He's like, hey, here's everything that you should be doing and you shouldn't be doing. I know that you've been doing it for a while, but I decided this is is how it's going to be. And so their response is something along the lines of like, says who? Right? That's how, at least that's how I was when I was a kid, right? Somebody came and told me what to do. I was like, you're not the boss of me. They don't tell me what to do. Says who? So that's basically what they're doing. They're saying, who, who gave you whatever authority you think you have here? Right? They're, they're basically asking him to show his credentials. Right? Show us, like, show us your badge, whatever. Show us, show us why you think you can do this. Tell us where your authority comes from so we can decide if we have to listen to you or not, right? Prove that we have to listen to you. But the interesting thing about that and and about this question is they really have no desire whatsoever to listen to Jesus, right? They, They don't really care what he is going to say about his authority, they don't. We, we already read, they have already made up their minds that they want him gone. They have already decided that 
at this point. We actually see in the book of Mark, it says very explicitly, they have already not only desired to kill him, but they have already started plotting how they are going to kill him when they ask him this question. So this is not a question about real authority. They are not, they are not legitimately concerned with the authority that he is using or that he is teaching by. Right? This is an attempt by the religious leaders to catch Jesus in a situation where they feel like they have the legal and spiritual justification to kill him. That's all they want to do. So they don't actually care about whatever authority he is talking about. So in their minds, Jesus can answer this question one of two ways. He can either respond by saying, uh, or respond in a way that, that basically makes them feel good about publicly convicting him of blasphemy and then stoning him to death, or he could respond in a way that would make the Romans convict him of insurrection and sedition, and then they would kill him. So for them, it's like whatever he says, we, we are, we're in the clear. They have already decided that they want him dead, and they are just trying to set a trap for him to, to see how they can publicly justify themselves. So they think it's a lose-lose scenario for Jesus in this question. But we know uh, Jesus is not, not so easily hoodwinked in these situations. Uh, so let's keep reading. Verse 24, Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. So Jesus flips the script on, on them, on the religious leaders. He, he flips it and, and uh, he asks them a question of his own. And, and this is really cool. It's not, he's not just avoiding their question, just for context. It's a very common practice at this time in what's called rabbinic debate, where, where teachers, when they're, when they're going back and forth on different topics, they'll ask each other questions in response to questions. So it's a very standard debate tactic. They seem to want to debate, and so Jesus obliges. Right, so keep reading. We're, we're in verse 25 now. This is Jesus' question to the, to the religious leaders. He says, John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. So this, this is really interesting, I think, because Jesus just asks them a different variation of the same question, essentially. They asked where his authority comes from. And so Jesus turns around and he said, well, where do you think John's authority came from? And so the reason this is such a genius move by Jesus is a, a big part of it is because of who is watching this entire interaction with Jesus and the chief priests, right? It's, it's the crowds. It's the people. The inner dialogue I think we just read of the chief priests and the elders in this passage really says it, says it all. It, 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 it shows us the reality of the situation for the, for the chief priests. If they say that John's authority came from God, they get exposed as frauds. Right? Because they outwardly and openly rejected John and all his teachings. But if they publicly say that John's authority came from man and not from God, then the crowds that are gathered around them will turn on them and likely attack them. Because the crowds, like we just read, largely believe that John was indeed a prophet sent by God. So now, the, now they're the ones in the hot seat. Right? So 
Then to drive his point home, Jesus doubles down and he gives us a parable. No transition whatsoever. They're like, we can't answer you. He's like, cool, here's a parable for you. Uh, So keep reading. Verse 28, he says, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later, he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. So Jesus, in in response to their question to him about authority, and then he asked them a question about authority, he then hits them with a parable about authority, right? So he, I also, I just want to say real quick, throughout Jesus' ministry, he tells a lot of parables that are, that are pretty confusing, honestly, pretty cryptic, uh, and to the point where like his disciples are like, we have no idea what you're talking about. Um, they needed him to go back and explain all of these different parables because they were stumped, right? This is probably, in my opinion, one of the most straightforward parables that he has ever told, right? No New Testament knowledge or or context or riddle-solving experience needed on this one. Very direct. There's a man. He's got two sons. One says they'll do what he says. Then he doesn't. One says that he won't, but then he does. So Jesus' question, which one did what the father said? It's pretty pretty straightforward, right? Which one did what the father said? the one who did it, right? The one who actually did what the father said. It's very straightforward. Not a trick question. Uh, It's it's really simple, honestly, this parable. But the religious leaders in this passage, they answer correctly, obviously, uh, unfortunately for them. So this answer then, then prompts Jesus to show them what the parable was actually about. So let's, let's finish reading through the passage. Uh, We'll pick up in the last half of verse 31. So they get the answer right. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Jesus has some really strong words here for the religious leaders. He had a lot of strong words for the religious leaders throughout his ministry, but I think final week of his life, Jesus was on a different level, right? He just just comes right out with hard truth, nothing cryptic, nothing, nothing confusing. It's just the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God ahead of you. It's interesting, the translation of that, uh, some, some translations actually say, instead of you, uh, which I, I think it's, it's very, very interesting that he would put it that way. So in Jewish culture at this time, uh, the two categories of people that are about as horrible as one could imagine were the tax collectors and the prostitutes. That was just like, that was the way that Jewish culture functioned. These are the two groups of people that are just the worst of the worst. So there, I would say this is kind of the modern equivalent uh, Maybe when people try to justify themselves and they use like a category as an example to make themselves look better. It's like saying like, I'm not like a murderer or anything, right? At least I'm, I'm not a murderer. Or maybe even, even more extreme, it's, like, it's not like I'm Hitler or anything, right? Could be way worse. I'm fine. 
Right? So this, it's the worst of the worst that you could come up with in your mind. So religious people at this time actually say things like, at least I'm not like a tax collector. Right? Jesus actually used that exact phrase in a parable about a Pharisee in, Ch- in Luke chapter 18. This is something that they would say just as, a, just as an illustrative point of, at least I'm not as bad as I could be, like a tax collector and a prostitute. So Jesus looks at the religious elite of his day, and he tells them, the worst possible person that you can imagine is in a better position than you are, because at least they repented and followed me. Right? So, so to continue that same illustration from a second ago, it's like saying, Jesus saying, you might not be a murderer, but murderers are going to heaven instead of you because they repented. Right? That's, a, that's strong words. And so Jesus connects all of this together for them. Jesus says, hey, John came to tell you what you needed to do. You need to repent of your sins. You need to obey God. And they rejected him. Right? They, they, they rejected John outright. But then they stood by off to the side and they watched as the worst of the worst in their minds did repent and did obey God. And still the religious leaders did not believe. They still did not listen. It was all happening right in front of them, right in front of their faces. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. You saw this happen after you rejected John, and you still did not believe. You still chose to reject it. All right, let's take a breath, let's zoom out, and we'll, we'll try to look at the whole picture, because I, I feel like this passage is a lot. So today, passage started off with, with the religious elite. They're asking Jesus a question about his authority. But in reality, they had no actual interest in his authority. They had no interest in whatever he had to say, say about his authority. They just wanted to frame him. They didn't want anything to do with what he was claiming, because they had plenty of authority in their minds. They, they, were, they were good, right? They had, the, they had the social and political clout. They had the image. They, had, they, had, uh, they, they were putting on this, this great show about how great they were and how close to God they were and how everybody else should want to be more like them. They were putting all of this on display. But they don't actually care about real authority. They don't actually care about whatever authority Jesus is saying that he is he's talking about. They just they care about this theoretical authority that they, that they have. They want to talk about this idea of authority, not real, legitimate authority that, that takes submission. But here was Jesus, right in front of them, turning things around and asking them, not about theoretical authority, but about practical authority, real authority. And they have no interest in it. Right? They, they are only interested in preserving their own image and destroying Jesus' image. That's what matters to them in this moment. But in, in direct contrast to the religious leaders, Jesus has no interest at all in theoretical authority. Right? That, that's exactly what this parable is about. The second son in that parable theoretically submitted to, to his father's authority. He said, of course I'll do what you said. He claimed he would do what the father told him to do, what the father asked of him. 
He's putting on this front to make himself look a certain way. But, but in reality, he didn't do what the father asked, even, even though he said he was going to. But the second son, or the first son, I'm sorry, the first son actually did submit to his father's authority and did what he was asked, even though initially he said he wouldn't. So Jesus is saying here, it doesn't matter what the second son said. It matters what he did. Right? It, it matters that the second son ultimately did not obey. And the first son turned from his rejection and did. That's what matters. So Jesus' response is, is intense, I think. Intense to say the least, right? He is not pulling any punches. He's not mincing any words. Jesus has no interest in the idea of theoretical authority because his kingdom is not a theoretical one. Yes, he responds strongly. But it's for great legitimate reason. And I think it's so important to, to remember, Jesus is not being spiteful. Jesus is not being mean. Jesus responds as strongly as he does because of how big of a deal this is to him. Jesus cares so much about people's repentance and, and he cares so much about people following him and submitting to his authority that he is willing to do and say whatever it takes to convince people to believe. Jesus cares so much about these people, even the chief priests and the elders. He cares so much about them waking up to the reality of their situation for their need for him that he is willing to provoke them to anger to the point of murdering him. He is not saying this just to make them mad. He's saying this knowing it will make them mad because it is so important. And he knows that's exactly what's coming. He knows that they are coming for him. And he still, in that moment, says, it is worth it to say anything that I can to try to convince these people of the truth. It is worth it. Jesus' response here is, is not just uh, an expression of judgment. It is also mercy. It, it is a merciful response. He is showing us very plainly, very clearly, that he will do literally whatever it takes to help people see the truth about where their life is and the truth about him. So, so why does all of this matter? Right? What, what significance does this have for us today? We're not chief priests and elders in the temple in Jerusalem. So, so what does this mean for us? And I think, I think that, it, that it does have some pretty massive implications for us, for all of us, right? Jesus' parable about the two sons and their father is just as relevant today as, as it was at this time, as it was back then. God is represented by the Father in this parable. And then the two sons represent everyone else. Everyone else. That includes the listeners in the temple, the crowds, the religious leaders, and it includes all of us. And, and I think in order for us to really grapple with what this means for our own lives, uh, we need to really zero in 
on, on what exactly Jesus is saying with this parable. So like, like I said just a second ago, I, I think that Jesus has no interest in theoretical authority. He, he doesn't have any interest in that. But he is absolutely pointing out just how common it actually is for people to think about his authority as theoretical. He is pointing out just how easy it is to exist in that space. Jesus is not saying there's no such thing as theoretical authority, but he's saying that there's no place for it in his very real kingdom. You see, just, just, like, in, in, just like the father in this parable, the main thing that Jesus is interested in is not just what we say about him. It's not, he, he is far more interested in what we do with what we say about him. That's, that is what Jesus is interested in. He is so much more concerned with whether or not we are taking what he has said and we are making it, making our lives reflect it. Making our lives actually look like the things that he said that his followers should look like. Through this parable, Jesus shows us it is very possible, very possible to theoretically claim allegiance to God and to, and, and to claim allegiance to everything that the Bible has to say without ever knowing and obeying God. That's what the religious leaders were doing, right? It is possible for us to claim to follow God without actually following God. And I think Jesus' own brother, James, he said this very, very plainly in his book, in chapter 2. He points this phenomenon out. He says, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. And then he says, you believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. That's what Jesus is pointing out here. That is what Jesus is showing the religious leaders who are trying to confront him. And, and that's the exact same thing that we have to consider in our own lives. And, and I, I, really think, I really think that this is the reality for, for many people in our world today. I, I think, uh, I think it's, it's scary, honestly, to me, to, to see how this situation doesn't just exist out in the world at large, but, but we've also created categories for this within the church to make ourselves feel like it's okay. We've, we've created categories for following Jesus, and we've, we've separated those categories out in ways that, that don't actually exist in Scripture. Right? If, you, if you pay attention to the way that Jesus talks in this passage, he, he's talking about the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes. They, they believed and they repented and they're entering the kingdom of God. He is saying all of those things and drawing a straight line between all of them. Those things all go together in Jesus' mind. Believing, repenting, submitting to God's authority, obeying, going to heaven. All of this stuff is included together. But over time, I feel like we've actually created separate categories for all of those things. 
Right? We, we say things uh, like, I got, I got saved when I was seven or enter the age. I got saved, but then I started living for Jesus when I was 25. Or I, I grew up in a Christian household. So I'd say I've always been a Christian, but I really made it my own when I had kids. Or, or sometimes we project it forward. Like, you know, I, I, you know I, I believe in God, but I just want to have my fun now, and then I'll get on the straight and narrow when I start to settle down or when I, when I graduate or when I have a family. And I'll be totally honest with you, that, that has been me at at parts of my life. I have absolutely said those things. I was absolutely in a place of, of feeling like I had checked whatever box I needed to check. I had, I had gotten saved, as I had said, and then I had locked in my fire insurance, basically, is what I said. I was good to go. No hell for me. I got saved. But eventually, I, I got to a place in my late teens, way, way further down the road, where I actually had to wrestle with the idea of what it means to, to follow Jesus. Because in reality, I was not following Jesus. I wasn't. I, I knew about him. I, I knew a lot about him. I knew what he did. I knew about my need for someone outside of myself. I knew that I was a sinner. Listen, I've, I've said this before up here. I, I grew up in a, in a missionary household overseas. This was like every day. I knew this stuff. Back to front. But I was not following him. I just, I wasn't. I was very, what I will call, Christian adjacent. Right? That was about it, though. But I, I, didn't, I didn't realize that. It, it wasn't until I actually was surrounded by other people who also claimed to follow Jesus, whose lives could not be further from what Scripture actually said. I saw some of those people, and then I saw another group of people that also claimed to follow Jesus whose lives looked completely different from this other group, and they were all saying the same thing. And, and, and that is when I started to realize I, I, I was just claiming allegiance. That is not the same thing as following Jesus. And that was the situation that, that I was in because when we say that we follow Jesus— but our lives don't look anything like what he calls his followers to do in Scripture, that puts us in the exact same situation as the first son in the story. When the father asks us to do something, we say, of course I will. And then we don't. Now, there, the, the reality is there, there are people who would openly say, I absolutely follow Jesus. But what they actually mean is, is kind of like what I meant when I said it, which was, I don't really like the idea of hell. Uh, so I, I'm going to say what I, what I feel like I need to say, and then I'm going to move on with my life. I'm going to check my box and move on and live life how I feel like living it. And, and, and I, do think, I, I do think it is fair to say, and I want to make this very clear, there are people who are not aware of this reality. That was the situation that I was in. And I know there are other people in the world that are in that situation. I did not understand, I did not actually realize what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. I didn't. I didn't understand that, that being a Christian meant actually submitting my life to Jesus. I, I was Christian adjacent. Like I said, I was around people 
who were living that way, who were living lives of repentance and submitting their, their lives to Jesus' authority. I was nearby. I was around them all the time. I was very aware of what it looked like. But, but I, wasn't, I wasn't submitting to Jesus myself. And I truly, I truly think as well, unlike the religious leaders, leaders in this passage, I do think there are people who think they are followers of Jesus, who, because they've been told that they are, maybe, or, or, or whatever the reason may be, and when they see the truth of what following him looks like, may realize that they weren't, and they will eagerly turn and pursue him. There are people that if they were shown what following Jesus really looks like, they are willing to follow him. And praise God for that. I, I also know that there are people who, who have recently started following Jesus, submitting their lives to him, who are in the process of learning what that actually looks like, who are in the process of learning what it means to submit to Jesus' authority and the life that is found in that. That is fantastic. Jesus is not saying at any point that you have to have your whole life sorted out to be his follower. He is not. Jesus is not asking for perfection. Jesus is asking for faithfulness. Jesus is asking for submission to his good and perfect authority. He, he is asking us to move in the direction of shaping our lives to look more and more like him by submitting to his authority. And I think that is happening in, in many people, and that is beautiful as they are learning that process. But, but truth be told, I, I think there, there are also plenty of people in this situation who are actually much more like the religious leaders that Jesus is talking to. I think the reality is there, there are people who do, in fact, know what Jesus calls his followers to do. They do know what it means to submit their lives to Jesus' authority. They, they know all of these things, and, and they still refuse to actually let him change their hearts. There, there are probably people listening today, honestly, who, who, like the chief priests in this passage, have seen with their own eyes people's lives transformed by Jesus, who have seen with their own eyes what, what true confession and repentance looks like, who have still refused to let it transform their own hearts. People who know exactly what it looks like to follow after Jesus but still aren't doing it. There, there are people who, who have seen people in their, in their life group over the years confess their, their battle with addiction. They've invited community in. They've, they've invited the Holy Spirit in. They've asked community and the Spirit to help pour into them as they're, as they're shaping their lives and, and, and shaping their hearts to be after Jesus. They've seen the transformative power of Jesus in that person's life, and they've kept silent about their own addiction. There, there are people who have seen others confess their struggles with, with pornography and model what it looks like to repent, to lay down their desires, to lay down their preferences because of Jesus' call on their life. They've seen the power of the Holy Spirit move and shape people to submit their, their finances or their job preferences or, or, or their, their standard of living, whatever this looks like. They've seen people their desire for a romantic relationship, all these different things. They've seen people lay it down at Jesus' feet, submitting to his authority, saying, whatever you have for my life, I want to submit to your authority. 
They've seen this happen through the transformative power of the Spirit, and they, and they still sit back and watch and keep all of their preferences and desires to themselves. They stand by watching the freedom that people experience and the satisfaction and the peace and the security that floods those people's lives because of their submission to Jesus. And they, and they still don't let that reality shape their own hearts. So, some of us are, are struggling to submit certain areas of our lives to Jesus. That is, that is true. I, I will be the first to say that. There are aspects of life as a follower of Jesus that are so difficult to see change and to see growth. And it is a long process and it is a difficult process. Some of us are struggling with some of Jesus' commands, some of the things that he says. Some of us are struggling to, in our walk with Jesus. That, there's so much room for that. There is. Growth, like I said, is a long process, and it, and it comes with struggle. That is the reality of it. But also, some of us aren't struggling to follow Jesus because we aren't actually following Jesus. But... Kent, Kent talked last week about the importance of access to God and, and, and the barriers to have a relationship with God being removed. He talked about the importance of that. That is so important. But you also have to remember, just because we have access to God doesn't mean that we've accepted him. Right? Go, going, going to church and spending all of our time with Christians doesn't, make us Christians. It doesn't make us Christians any more than, than going to a parking lot and spending your time around cars makes you a Camry. Like, it, <laughs> it doesn't. And, and that's, the, that's the reality of the situation, though. That, that's the reality of, of following Jesus isn't passive. Following Jesus doesn't happen to us. Proximity doesn't mean that we're submitting to Jesus' authority. Just, just, saying, just saying words or reading a script doesn't, doesn't automatically mean we're submitting to Jesus' authority. Jesus actually talked about this reality really, really explicitly uh, in, in the Sermon on the Mount. I like how uh, it's, it's recorded in Luke. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus says this to the people who were gathered before him. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say? Why? Why would you, why would you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? And, and Jesus says some version of this over and over throughout his time on earth. He says, my followers are the ones who do my Father's will. My followers are the ones who recognize and submit to my authority as Lord and King. My followers are the ones who don't just put theoretical authority on display, but withhold aspects of their lives from Jesus' authority. This is incredibly strong language, and, and I think it might, it might sound harsh sometimes, but, but it makes so much sense. It makes so much sense when you, when you actually think about it. Think about how contradictory it says if you turn it around and say, Jesus, I want to be a part of your kingdom, but I would prefer if you weren't king. Right? Do you see how that doesn't make sense? And I, I think it, it's, it's clear when we think about it that way. But Jesus, in this passage, he's, he's laying this out very plainly. 
for the religious leaders. And, that, and that's what he is saying to them. And I want to make sure that I reiterate as strongly as I can, nothing that Jesus is doing or saying is out of spite or out of coercion or, or to make people just live in shame. That is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is showing us he is willing to be as harsh or as gentle as he needs to be with the truth to bring us into life with him. To bring us into life with him. That is what he is asking us to do. That is what submitting to Jesus' authority is. And everything that I am saying here today is for the same reason. I am not saying anything to, to try to, to be judgmental. I'm not trying to say anything to make anyone feel upset or, or offended, any, any of those things, or ashamed. I'm not trying to do that. I am not trying to make myself sound superior to anyone. I desperately want you to know Jesus. I want you to allow Jesus to be the authority in your life. I desperately want you to experience life to the fullest, resting in the beauty and the security of the love that Jesus has for you. That is what I want for you. Please, please hear me. I, Jesus doesn't need you to follow him, but he wants it for you so deeply. He wants that so, so deeply. Jesus is not trying to coerce you into following him. Jesus is inviting you to look at how he has removed every barrier that has ever been placed between you and him. That is what Jesus is trying to show you. He has torn down every obstacle that has come up between you and him. He has done everything, including going to the cross and dying so that you can experience true freedom. That is what comes with submitting to Jesus' authority. That is what Jesus died to accomplish, the freedom that he offers you through submitting to his authority. Life under Jesus' rule and reign and authority is not oppression, it is freedom. Maybe, maybe you have experienced something in your life, maybe you are experiencing this now, where, where you just feel trapped. You feel stuck in your sin or in your circumstances or, or in whatever aspect of your life has made you feel trapped. Maybe you can't see past the reality of your own brokenness. You, you feel like you can't see a way out of the weight and the bondage that you're living in. Maybe you've been living your whole life for yourself for so long that the thought of changing course and restructuring everything just feels completely unattainable. How could I ever do that? But Jesus is right here, standing right in front of you, standing before you on your path towards destruction, inviting you into freedom, inviting you into life, inviting you into healing. Jesus is offering you this love and, and this comfort and, and the power that brings peace beyond all understanding through his spirit. He, he is offering a way of life that is better 
He is offering freedom from the pressure to achieve and earn something for ourselves in order for us to have significance in this world. He, he is offering something that is far too amazing and far too incredible and far too beautiful to just be boiled down to a simple transaction. He is offering us a life of freedom and satisfaction now and life eternally fully restored and made whole in his kingdom. That is so beautiful. That is what Jesus is inviting us to. That is what submitting to Jesus' authority is. And, and, and the question for all of us today is just this. Is, is Jesus our theoretical authority or is he our actual authority? Do we say that we love Jesus, that we obey Jesus, that we follow Jesus, or do we actually do those things? Do we love Jesus? Do we obey Jesus? Do we follow Jesus? So how, how are we going to respond to Jesus? And I, I, know, I know that today has been a lot. It's a lot for me working through this passage. It's a lot for me processing through some of these realities. But I, I want to finish just reminding everyone of, of this one thing. God of the universe, the, the creator of all things, the Lord of lords, the king of kings, rightfully has all authority. But he also loves you so deeply. He, he has no qualms about calling out rebellion towards him for what it is. He has no problem showing us the reality of our situation when we are separated from him by our sin. But he is also standing before you with open arms in the midst of our rebellion saying, I, I love you, I am here, and I am not going anywhere. That is what Jesus is inviting us into. Jesus is inviting us into, into life, into real, true life. And, and like I said earlier, this is a process, and that is okay, and Jesus is faithful, and he, he told us that we have his spirit here on earth with us, moving in us and moving through his people as we walk on that on that road towards him, on, on that journey of submission to his authority. And, and that is beautiful that we have access to him in that way and that we have the empowerment of the spirit as we are walking on that journey because it is a process. And it is, it is hard and it is also so beautiful and it is so worth it. So we're going we're gonna to wrap up. The band is going to come on up um, and we're going we're gonna to close just with a few songs like we do every week, um, and, and I just want, I, we say this often, but I also, I, I want to just remind us that when we sing songs to Jesus, when we sing songs after we, we finish going through his word and seeing what it, what it says and what it means and the implications it has for our life, the songs that we sing are not something separate and distinct and, and a new phase of the, of the service. The songs that we sing are, are part of our response to Jesus, to his teaching, to his words. And, and the, thing, the words that we say and the words that we sing are hopefully can be, can be statements of truth. They can be confessions of our heart. 
They can, they can be opportunities for us to, to put to words the things that may be happening in our hearts and in our spirits. And, and there are times where, where the words in these songs are, are hard to sing and hard to say. And you may be in a place where you feel like, I don't think I can say that right now. And that's part of the beauty of the body that, that we get to be and the, the beauty of the, the, the fact that the same spirit is in all followers of Jesus. In those situations, you get to sing those songs and those words over the people who are not able to sing them right now or for the people who are not able to sing them yet. And that, that can be part of our prayer and part of our response is, is the words that we say. And so we're also going to have the communion tables open. And, and that's just a, a, a physical representation, a response to the reality of, of the lengths that Jesus went to in order to make a way for us to have access to him, in order for us to have a way to, to freely submit to his authority. We get, we get to meditate on the fact that Jesus truly did everything in order to make a way for us. Jesus is willing to do whatever it takes to wake us up to the reality that we need him, to the point of death on a cross. And that's what we get to reflect on and, and respond by taking communion if you, if you are a follower of Jesus. And, and it's also not just a reminder of that reality, it's also a reminder of, of the beauty that we get to celebrate. And, and the... the the beauty that that now means for our lives. So I invite you to, to pray with us as we close.